0: and I can't help but go back over those. Just think of stepping ashore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it gods, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Just a reminder that this world is not our home. We're just passing through and our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So thank you for that reminder, Jerry. Beautifully done. And uh, Emily for accompanying. John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. This is a contrast in characters that I mentioned just a few minutes ago that uh, is somewhat uh, negative or, or difficult. Uh, it's a little bit depressing in a sense because Judas is not a character in the Bible that we uh, often like to think much about. He was a traitorous person. We'll, we'll look at some of the aspects of Judas's life on Wednesday nights. We've started a series on Bible characters, And so, in a sense, we've kind of put the the series together for uh, a couple of uh, weeks here because we looked at Gideon on on Wednesday night, we looked at uh, Mary uh, more closely last Sunday morning, and we've looked at Barnabas, and then now we're going to be looking at Judas. So, in a sense, we're kind of putting our Sundays and our Wednesdays together in our Bible character studies, but this is where uh, God has led us as we have been going through the book of John in our Sunday morning series, and this... uh, Study through the book of John has just overwhelmed me at times in seeing the glories of Jesus Christ and in seeing his love, his compassion, his burden for the lost, and then just the uh, the tremendous truth and, and, and teaching that we are getting. And, and, and again, I've taught through the book of John before. I've done a whole series of classes, uh, in a Bible class at our Christian school many years ago. And yet going back through the, the book of John again, it's just... Uh, refreshing. It's drinking from uh, a fresh water fountain all over again. And that's one of the glories of studying the word of God. The word of God never gets boring. It never gets old. It never gets to be routine. So many things of our life are just routine. I mean, we all get tired of brushing our teeth, putting our socks on, you know, going through the routine to get ready for work, whatever the routine is. We all get bored with those and get tired of those basic everyday matters of life that are important, that we need to do, but may the Word of God never be just routine. May the Word of God never be boring. May the Word of God never be just something that we just take our eyes and drag our eyeballs across. The riches and the glory of Jesus Christ is on every page of the Word of God. And in John chapter number 12, we are met with a contrast from Mary who was overwhelmed with reverence and gratitude and devotion for her Savior, Jesus Christ, who had just raised her brother, and she saw the eternal like we looked at last week, and she broke that alabaster box of precious spikenard ointment that if we compared to our value based on the 300 pence or the 300 denarii, which was about one year's wages, It would be in the neighborhood of $75,000 for that one perfume, that one box of perfume based on our economic standards, our monetary standards today. A sacrifice to Mary that was really nothing. It, It really, it meant in monetary value so little to her because her eternal soul had been saved She had received forgiveness of sins, and she was looking even ahead to the fact that Christ was not going to be with them physically much longer, that she was looking ahead even to his death and burial and resurrection. And that's why in John chapter number 12, in verse number 7, then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying, hath she kept this. And we know from Matthew 26, from Mark chapter 14, the parallel passages that Jesus even made reference to the fact that this sacrifice was going to be spoken about everywhere that the gospel went. That's an amazing thought that this sacrifice, this giving of this spikenard, this ointment in the heart of of gratitude the heart of reverence the heart of devotion from which it came is such a important moment that even Christ himself would say wherever the gospel is preached this sacrifice by mary will be spoken of it was a testimony to her faith it was a testimony to her devotion it was a testimony to her reverence to her humility But it was, most importantly, a testimony to Jesus Christ and what he had done for her and a testimony to the power of the gospel to save lives, to save souls, to forgive us of our sin, to give us a home in heaven by the grace of God that we do not deserve. So the setting is Bethany. The setting is in the house of Simon, a former leper, a leper who had no doubt been saved and have been healed by Jesus Christ. There were Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We looked a little bit last week at Mary and how her testimony of worship is so evident in this event. Martha, her testimony of work or service, and Lazarus, of witness. We saw, again, Mary's sacrifice, her devotion, her her humility, her reverence, her worship. We see her view of the eternal, of looking out, and having her affection set on things above, not on things on the earth. Christ is preeminent in her life, and she is seeking first the kingdom of God. So what a stark contrast between her and Judas. Judas, this is the first place in the Gospels that we actually have a quote recorded by Judas, a quote of Judas. And we read there in John 12, in verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Again, there's no record of any relation of Judas Iscariot to the Simon, that is the host of the meal. But Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. In verse number 5, this is what Judas says. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Oh, it seemed compassionate on his part. It seemed that he really cared about the poor. It seemed to be a real statement of concern. There's $75,000 worth of value here. Imagine all the people that we could have helped with this instead of it being spent anointing Jesus' head and his feet, as Mary did, and wiped his head and his feet with her hair. He doesn't see the sacrifice, he doesn't see the reverence, he doesn't see the worship, he doesn't see the humility, he doesn't see the eternal, he's only looking at the temporal. He doesn't see at all the eternal value. So we see, first of all, with Judas, we see his false piety, his false piety. He criticizes Mary for, in his mind, wasting the ointment when it could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. But really, did Judas even care about the poor? Did he really care about the poor? Think about it, if he really cared about the if he really cared about the poor, then he would have even cared more about Jesus. Who Jesus himself would have not been rich even by the standards of that day. In Matthew 8, in verse number 20, we read the foxes have have holes, The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus Christ himself was not rich and increased with goods, even by the standards of that day. Do we not hear an echo of our politicians in today's world in the voice of Judas, in the words of Judas here? Politicians often express verbal concern, virtue signaling for the poor, but very few real lasting solutions do the politicians and the policies ever really affect in our culture. L.B. Johnson declared a war on poverty in 1964, but here in America it has been largely unsuccessful. The Heritage Foundation on their website, they state in the 50 years since LBJ's speech, his declaration of war on poverty, in the 50 years since that time, U.S. taxpayers have spent over $22 trillion on anti-poverty programs. Adjusted for inflation, this spending, which does not include Social Security or Medicare, is three times the cost of all U.S. military wars since the American Revolution. Yet progress against poverty, as measured by the U.S. Census Bureau, has been minimal. And in terms of President Johnson's main goal of reducing the causes Rather than the mere consequences of poverty, the war on poverty has failed completely. In fact, a significant portion of the population is now less capable of self-sufficiency than it was when the war on poverty began. The poor we have with us always, Jesus says, in verse number, five, verse number 8, excuse me. And we'll come back to that a little later. But the point is that this was a false piety. Judas didn't really have concern for the poor. He thought that he could virtue signal, he could make a verbal statement that would make people think, yeah, he's so spiritual, he really cares about the poor. When he totally missed the message. He totally missed the heart. He totally missed the sacrifice. He totally was without the devotion and the reverence and the worship that Mary had. He had false piety. Number two, he was a thief. Oh yeah, he really had concern for the poor, didn't he? He was a thief. We read down further in verse number six, this he said, not that he cared for the poor. So we have there in holy writ, a declaration that Judas did not care for the poor we have all the other evidences and then we have in holy writ in scripture the statement not that he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and again i can't help but contra- or can't can't help but compare excuse me with politicians of today virtue signaling concern for the poor but they're thieves They're downright scoundrels, and this is not a political stump speech by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not up here taking any sides with any party and telling you how to vote on Tuesday. That's not my point. There are scoundrels on both sides of the political aisle. But I'm saying that there's a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of verbal statements about helping the poor when there's really no true compassion, no real concern, and there are a bunch of thieves lining their own pockets. And how many times are we guilty of the same? We're stealing economically, spiritually. We are guilty of being thieves in our own homes, in our workplace, in our places of recreation, around our culture. We can be false in our piety and be thieves in our actions, just like Judas, if we're not careful. He carried the money bag. He was taking from it. He was... Accounts payable and accounts receivable. He was the one taking care of the money. He knew it was coming in. He knew it was going out, so he could do a little fuzzy math. I was talking about this with somebody on, I think it was Wednesday night, that I understand fuzzy math is now a term that's in the dictionary. It came as a result of either the 2000 election with Gore and Bush and all that went on, or it was the Enron scandal, I forget. But fuzzy math. Judas knew how to make things look balanced on the balance sheet when really he was stealing. And I know from working in retail many years ago, I know that it was important for us to have the register balance at the end of the day and having to count and making sure that the receipts matched up. And I remember going through that, and I remember my manager, when the register didn't balance like it was supposed to, I mean, she would sometimes stay after and she would spend hours And we would have to go through receipts and we would have to uh, give an accounting for everything. Judas had it all figured out and he was stealing from the money back. False piety, thievery. Thirdly, we see that Judas was a hypocrite. He was a hypocrite. We would probably put that down as capital H, as the biggest hypocrite of all time. He was the greatest traitor, in a sense, who ever lived. Worse than a Benedict Arnold from American history. His devotion, his devotion to Jesus was superficial. It was only for what he could get out of the relationship. It was totally utilitarian. Judas did not have a real heart for Jesus. And to this day, he is forever known as Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. And I think even the name Judas has, for the most part, fallen out of use. There might be some who use Jude or some form of Judas, but for the most part, you don't see in the popular books for naming your children, you don't see anywhere in the top of the list, Judas. His name has gone down infamously in history as a traitor, as a hypocrite. Though he had mingled with the disciples, he had managed to assimilate himself with the other 11 disciples, and we would know that even at the Last Supper, he had so figured out how to play the part, how to blend in, that when Jesus mentioned that there was one at the table who would betray him, the disciples began to look around and ask, who, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? And Judas had slipped out to go betray Christ. And yet so many people were still not suspicious of him. He had figured it out how to play the part, how to talk to Jesus lingo, how to say the right things, how to dress the right way, how to fit in, how to blend in. And he was a hypocrite. He was living a double life. His heart was far from Christ, even though he walked the roads with him. He heard the sermons He was under the teaching of Jesus. He heard the truth, and he rejected it. He had a heart of stone, calloused. Oh, it burdens my heart. Having grown up in a Christian home, and by the grace of God, I stand here today. Only by his grace, I don't deserve this. Growing up in a Christian home, having been in church from the time I was a baby, I mean, I was probably in church the second Sunday after I was born, knowing my mom and the dedication my parents had to the Lord and to the church. I grew up behind bars. I didn't have a testimony of wicked, evil proportions, but I grew up behind bars in a crib. I was not a member of some evil tricycle gang or anything like that. Okay. I'm thankful for my Christian upbringing. I'm thankful for it. I never want to take it for granted. I, I, it breaks my heart when young people grow up and they despise the truth that they were taught. I watched classmates live like a Judas. Spiritual pride, hypocrisy, and they rejected. They turned 18 and they spit on their parents and they spit on all of the leaders and the religious and the spiritual influences in their life and they turn. There are lives over to the devil. And I say that not to be patting myself on the back in any way, shape, or form, but I sat in the same Bible classes. I sat in the same chapel services. I sat in the same auditorium listening to the same sermons. They outright rejected God. It's, it breaks my heart that there are Judases. There are Judases that could even be sitting here today. It broke my heart as a Christian school principal to see students getting 31s and 32s on their ACTs with full-ride scholarships, academic scholarships, and they would walk across a platform, receive a diploma from a Christian school, and they'd walk off that platform, and they'd walk in the ways of the devil. And their lifestyle to this day, in many cases, is a rejection of Christ, and it's an apostasy. It is a warning all the way down to the last two books of the Bible in Jude and in Revelation, a warning of apostasy and the sins of Judas are in all of us, at least in seed form, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we all need to recognize His grace, God's grace. We all need to learn from the lives of Mary and Judas and be a Mary and not be a Judas. And how dangerous it is because of the root of sin, because of bitterness, because of having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, the chance of apostasy is present really in every Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church because of sin but there is a grave warning because god is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance jesus christ loved judas and he loved him down to the very end appealing for him to get saved even down to the very end but judas rejected christ he was a hypocrite he was a traitor Now, again, lest we become too lifted up in pride and think of ourselves too highly, we have to remember that the definition of a hypocrite is everybody some of the time and some of us all the time. Some people say, I'm not going to go to church, go in there and sit with a bunch of hypocrites. Sometimes I want to say, why don't you come and join us because you're a hypocrite too. We're all hypocrites in some way, shape or form some of the time. Some people, they live a life of hypocrisy. It is the pattern of their life. It is their lifestyle. It is disgusting when we see people live that way. It turns people's hearts away from the Lord. Children who grow up in a home where there is rank hypocrisy, where mom or dad live one way at church and in front of Christian people and live a different way at home and in their workplace, it will produce bitterness in the heart of a child. I have watched children who grew up in homes where mom or dad or both lived a completely different lifestyle at home than they did at church. They'd come to church and put on the front, live a different way at home and in the workplace, and I've watched those children become bitter and angry at God and turn from the Lord. Some of them have come back. Some of them have renewed their relationship with Christ. But many of them, they get so disgusted with the hypocrisy that their bitterness prevents them from ever turning to Christ or ever returning to Christ. Hypocrisy can cause bitterness in the home and bitterness against God and the church. It can devastate homes, churches, and institutions. But of course, we see hypocrisy all the time in politics. And it disgusts us. It takes us On Tuesday, or maybe you voted early or did absentee ballot, but I know when I was filling out my ballot, at times I was holding my nose as I was filling out my ballot because my ballot stunk with some of the candidates. And it's disgusting the hypocrisy in our politics. But we call it out in our politics, but do we call it out in our own lives? Do we call it out in our homes? We call it out in our own relationships with others, where we claim a spiritualness, a spiritual maturity. We, we claim to be such great Bible people and such wonderful saints and servants of the Lord, and yet we have hypocrisy in our personal life, in our private life, in the way we interact with our wives, our spouse, our children. How sad that there can be a Judas Even in our midst, there could be a Judas, even in our hearts, in a sense, that spirit of Judas. So let's not be lifted up in pride. Let's remember the danger of hypocrisy, the danger of apostasy. So we've seen his false piety, we've seen his thievery, we've seen his hypocrisy, and then fourthly, we see his temporal, selfish attitude. His values were temporal. His values were selfish. They were not eternal. They were not sacrificial like Mary's. He sees the money bag as an opportunity to steal, to gain some temporal benefit from being associated with Christ and the apostles. That is convicting. To think that I can glean from the general grace of God's people and yet be using and exploiting the church, Christ, and God's people for my own personal, selfish, temporal gain. That's ugly. But that's what sin does. That's how ugly sin is. Judas was beginning to become disenchanted with Christ. He is, by this time, he is done with Christ he's done with the apostles maybe he wanted to be the second one in the kingdom maybe he wanted Jesus to be that political leader who would throw off the Roman oppression and he would go forth as the general or the leader along Jesus Christ and Judas would be given a place in the kingdom of high superiority and of course he would be the one who would get the riches and get the glory, and get the monetary, economic gain from Jesus' kingdom that Judas thought that Jesus should have. Maybe that's part of Judas's motive. But his words that he thought were so compassionate, were so com- concerning, virtue signaling about the poor, it actually revealed his heart. Temporal, selfish motives. He had everybody fooled into believing that he was a true disciple of Christ, but he was a self-serving evil man whose God was money and power. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 26, in verse number 8, there's even an indication there that the disciples got caught up in Judas's protest. Yeah, Judas, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. We, we could have benefited from the sale of that alabaster box, that ointment, that's $75,000. Let's see here, 75000 divided by 12. Uh, that would be a, you know over $8,000 each. Pardon me if I got my math wrong. Somebody can help me out. Please correct me after the service um, if I got it wrong. Somewhere around 8000 plus. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. I could use an extra $8,000, especially in that day, based in, in, in the economics of, of the first century. That's a lot of money. They start to join in with Judas. And isn't that so typical of human nature, of weak commitment, of selfish temporal values and motives? Sadly, that's what attracts the crowd. I don't know how many times I have tried to help my kids. I've dealt with students at schools, dealt with young people, even adults. Who are you following? What are you doing? What, do you even think about what you're doing and what you're saying? I sat boys in my office just being cruel throwing food in girls' hair, making up crude nicknames for girls in the school, and then saying them as they're walking down the hallway in a crowd of people, and then somebody would yell out that crude nickname for that girl, and that girl would hear it, and she'd be turned around. And they got turned in one day, and I'm the principal of the school, and I brought them in. And I sat them down across from my desk, and I gave him my evil principal eye. And I knew what they had done. I even saw it on the camera. Security camera in the lunchroom. Oh, Pastor Brent. I, I, I. Okay. You did it. I saw you. I know you did it. Next kid comes in. Oh, I, 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 yeah, but, I know. You did it. Next kid comes in. Okay, I know you didn't do it this time. And then I would go through the whole 20 questions with them. And I would say, you know what? You may not have done it. You may have only done it once. But you just keep hanging out with that same crowd. You go right along with them. You join right in. And it's no big deal. I didn't do it. But you're back there. You're clapping. You're applauding the evil. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the worldly, attractive, trendy Wicked, sinful, evil of our culture. And we'll jump right in. Yeah. And there's no discernment about God's word and his truth and what does God's word say about this. And I've been guilty of it. And I've been guilty, and I'm thankful I've had people in my life who have stopped me. And now we have the internet. Now we have the internet that teaches us all kinds of sinful, wicked, evil. And we have influencers now that lead us and lead our children into all kinds of wicked thoughts and ideas. And all it takes now is some ridiculous TikTok challenge to cause some sort of anarchy in society, to cause some vandalism or some destruction or even death where young people see a TikToker say, do this, try this. And they end up in a hospital and a little kid in the United Kingdom died because he was involved in a TikTok challenge because some influencer said, try this, it's a lot of fun. And that kid went into eternity trying to keep up with the crowd, trying to follow what was trendy and what was culturally acceptable to follow some TikTok challenge that maybe gave somebody 15 seconds of fame and a little bit of fortune. And so many times, if we're not careful, we will listen to a Judas instead of looking at a Mary and seeing the eternal. And instead of being discerning and biblical in our approach, in our decision, in how we live our life and how we lead our family, instead of being biblical, we will follow the attitude and the spirit of a Judas. What a shame. But we can't get too high and mighty because too many times we're just like those 11 other disciples who listened to a Judas instead of looking at Christ and seeing the heart of Mary. Judas judged Mary's motive. Yet he had a wicked motive himself. He had a huge beam in his eye. He had a huge steel skyscraper-sized beam in his own eye, and yet he's pointing at Mary and thinking that her sacrifice was something wrong and evil and waste, and it wasn't at all. He judged her motive while he had a wicked motive and tried to cover up that wicked motive with a false, hypocritical concern for the poor. So then we come down to Jesus' statement. Jesus' statement here. He says, For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Oh, this, this phrase, this statement has been yanked out of context so many times. I mean, it's almost become a trademark for some of the social gospel movements that are out there. And many churches now have even, they've kind of hidden the true gospel or gotten rid of the true gospel in order to preach and to act on a social gospel. It's, it's sad. So many churches have gone that route, and this is one of the verses that's often li- lifted out of context. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Jesus is obviously speaking to the fact that he's physically going to die, and he's going to be crucified for our sins, pay the penalty for our sins. He's going to rise again, and then he's going to be ascended up into glory, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit in a personal, indwelling way to be the comforter, to be the intercessor for all who truly believe. So, Jesus is, of course, speaking to the fact that his earthly ministry, his physical ministry on earth in the incarnation was coming to an end. But his statement about the poor is not judgmental, okay? Nor is it preaching a social gospel movement to the church. We have to understand that poverty, and please understand what I'm about to say here, but poverty, when we really look at it and we really apply biblical lenses as we look at poverty around the world, and so we, just heard from a a quote from the Heritage Foundation regarding the war on poverty, which has been highly unsuccessful here in America. Poverty often comes as a result of many different factors. It can come as a result of sinful choices, yes. Certain addictions can lead clearly to poverty within a short amount of time. Poverty can come from mismanagement of money. It can come from laziness simply not having a good work ethic. It can come sometimes through no fault of our own, a physical disability, a sickness, a tragedy of some kind, some sort of catastrophe. But often a country experiences poverty because of oppressive government rule. When you look at and see the study of poverty in history, almost always there is a direct connection with oppressive government, government rules and regulations and oppression that keeps the people in a state of dependency and keeps them in a state of poverty. It does not allow the people to flourish in education, in ingenuity, in resources, creativity, freedom, and profit from their labor. In the Industrial Revolution of America, we were blessed that there was a deregulation of society and people were allowed to be rewarded for their risk and for their labor, for their ingenuity and for their creativity. And this is not an economics lesson, but Chandler's taking a class on economics right now and it is an incredible Christian look, biblical look at economics. I've even been watching a lot of the lectures with him or, or we both have been watching them because they're so good. We have been blessed to have a biblical principle of allowing human ingenuity and work in an image of God, understanding of man, that rewards us for our work, for our creativity, for our labor, instead of the government taking everything that we have and owning it and then giving back a little bit in some soup line, as it is in some places around the world you know poverty in a lot of cases we have to remember that poverty can also be very relative it can also be very relative some of you grew up in a time where you had virtually nothing you knew what it was like for mom and dad to pinch pennies and to have to literally just about beg to have to live with almost nothing a vacation what was that? Uh, you wore hand-me-downs all your life. You, you, you used the same plastic containers for everything over and over and over again. I remember being in Kenya. I remember walking the, into the little town. I can't remember the name of the town now, but Pastor Jackson. I'll tell you what, it was it was It was eye-opening. Pastor Jackson's taking me into this little town, near Ongeverengai, outside Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm walking down this little dirt path, and there's raw sewage, trickling, down. People are living in cardboard homes with scrap metal. And I walk into this little church, where it's open air windows, no glass, little, concrete building, and I got to preach on the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And I am this spoiled, rich American kid on a mission trip, and I'm preaching to people who have nothing. And it woke me up. It shook me to the core. I walked out of that little church building back down that street, and there's piles of trash, and people are digging through it to find something to eat or a container to put their stuff in. Pastor Jackson was with me and this drunk in the middle of the day after church, this drunk comes up to me and he sees me and he comes to me and he starts talking to me and Pastor Jackson puts his arm around me and pulls me away. And he says, Brent, that man, you don't want to to be anywhere near him. He's probably been sniffing some glue bottle that he found in the trash or he's buzzed from some alcohol that he found, some liquor that he dug out of the trash or that he spent what little bit of money he had to buy while neglecting his family and his children. I saw slum villages as I walked through the streets of Nairobi and I saw up on the side of the hill a slum village with poverty I could not even possibly describe. We're spoiled in so many ways. We complain about the slightest little things. I remember my mom and dad saying, you don't get the nicest car when you graduate from high school. As a matter of fact, you don't even get a car when you graduate from high school. My first car was a 1979 Malibu with a headliner that was falling down that we had to keep pushing up that had a broken carburetor. And my dad had to keep going and messing with it and spraying and telling me, okay, if you uh, can't get the car to start, you got to go out and you got to open up the hood and you got to go in, pop the top of the carburetor off and do this little thing and spray this little stuff, and go back in and start the car. Nowadays, if we don't have a shiny Corvette when we're 18, then we have been oppressed, And our rights have been violated. We have such a wrong view sometimes. Jesus' statement about the poor is not judgmental. He's just simply saying that because of sin in general, and sometimes sin specifically, there is always going to be poverty somewhere in the world. But that wasn't the main lesson. The main lesson was that he was not physically going to be with them much longer. And Mary's anointing had such great significance of sacrifice, of worship, of devotion, of looking to the eternal, of her humility. I was reminded even last week, something I hadn't even seen in the commentaries until I went back and was looking again, but the fact that she let down her hair and used her hair to wash Jesus' feet, the hair of a woman is her glory, it was a shame for her to let her hair down in public. That broke a cultural custom would have brought shame to her. But it was an act of humility. She was giving her all. She was looking to the eternal. And Judas missed all of that. And we can be so guilty of having a Judas attitude, a Judas motive, a Judas spirit. And sadly, there are some who even have a Judas heart. Cold and calloused, rejecting Christ. May that not be true of any of us today. May we see the testimony of Mary and see Christ and see the great significance of all the benefits of knowing Christ and living for Christ and obeying Christ and worshiping him and being devoted fully, 100% committed to him all of our days. May that be the motive of our hearts. The contrast in character, it's obvious. We close with just these verses that we had in our scripture reading the conspiracy to murder in verses 9 and 10. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. They came to see Lazarus and Jesus. But then we read in verse 11, we see the confidence of faith, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. They went to see Lazarus. They went to talk, and it wasn't about all that Lazarus experienced for four days in the grave. They went to see Lazarus, and they went away with Christ. And that's what we need to see ultimately from this passage. We need to see Christ. And we need to have a heart of Mary and a testimony of Mary, and we need to have a heart of devotion and commitment, of humility and worship. And like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. May the heart and the spirit of Judas not be in our church. If you're here today, you can come to Christ. He will forgive you. He will save you. As a believer, if you need to get that spirit and that attitude of Judas out of your life, you can do business with the Lord even today and get that fixed. But may each of us have the heart of devotion and worship of a Mary and have that testimony. Let's pray. Lord, we give you the glory and the praise. Lord, this passage, it's... So convicting and so impactful, and teaches us so much about who you are and what we ought to be before you, Lord. I pray if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. As believers, Lord, may we not have one ounce of the spirit of a Judas in our lives. But Lord, may we be fully committed, dedicated, humble in our service, in our obedience to you. Pray that you will do your work, even. Now, as we sing this closing hymn, as we go our way, Lord, may the Holy Spirit continue to move and convict, and Lord, change us, help us to walk out of here a changed people, more like you, looking to the eternal, that you must increase and we must decrease. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jake is gonna come and lead us.